I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Australia's news cycle often focuses on the day-to-day dealings of our state and federal leaders, sometimes at the expense of substantive issues. The 24-7 news cycle and continual stream of social media can create a sense of intimate knowledge of politicians, particularly our ministers, premiers and prime minister. However, our leadership structure, narrative and focus is hierarchical, focusing on the top of the political tree and often quite disconnected from the voters in Australia. This is reflected in the Australian electoral study that was done here at ANU, which found before the pandemic, roughly only one in 10 Australians believed that the government was run for all the people. Whilst trust grew in politics at the height of the global pandemic in 2020, the latest survey data suggests again that it might be on the slide. The disconnect between political leadership and the people they represent is increasingly obvious. Instances of corruption or nepotism, behaviour that is or appears to be self-serving, and most recently, disregard of serious gender-based discrimination, alienate many voter groups. Today, we explore how some of these issues are playing out at the local level. Is there greater trust and connection between political leaders and those they're elected to represent in local, particularly regional communities? How do we achieve good community relationships with our elected representatives? And are we seeing new forms of leadership emerge to challenge our traditional politics? Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing the region. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and the Human Futures Fellow here at the College of Health and Medicine at ANU. And I'd like to welcome you to Policy Forum Pod today. Policy Forum is, of course, produced by PolicyForum.net as part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. There's some great short and master's degree programs available through Crawford School. And I remind you just to check out our degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So last week, in the first episode of our mini-series on leadership and democracy, we spoke with Frank Bongiorno and Chris Wallace about leadership at its highest level, the realm of prime ministers and federal elections. But today, in our second episode, we want to delve into leadership at the local level, from community groups advocating for policy action to the independent political movements that have been gaining momentum over the last decade or so. And we're really excited to be joined by two fabulous guests to discuss not only how these local actors might be able to strengthen local communities' connection to the democratic process, but also how leaders at the highest level of government can reconnect with their constituents. So joining us today are two fabulous guests, Carolyn Hendricks, 
She's professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy. She has a background in political science and environmental engineering. She's published widely on the democratic aspects of contemporary governance, including participation, public deliberation, inclusion and representation. Regular listeners to the pod will be familiar with her most recent book, which was co-authored with Selin Erkan and John Boswell, because we discussed it actually more than once. It's called Mending Democracy, Democratic Repair in Disconnected Times, and it presents case studies that reveal the creative power of everyday people to strengthen democratic connections within existing political institutions and practices. I've been known to refer to Carolyn as the formal biographer of the Voices for movement, particularly in Indi. So welcome, Carolyn. It's great to have you back with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Anagoda. And alongside Carolyn, we've got Dennis Ginnivan. Dennis was a foundation committee member and a former president of Voices for Indi, a community group for the federal seat of Indi in northern Victoria, which has supported the community to engage directly in community political activity. Since February 2020, Dennis's Events That Matter consultancy has been implementing the Voices for project, which is supporting the emergence, formation, training, moral support and resourcing of community democracy groups located predominantly in rural Australia. Dennis has quite extraordinary experience and understanding of the independent movement uh, that's brought us the extraordinary politicians, Cathy McGowan and Helen Haynes. And it's great to have you with us today, Dennis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Anna Greta. Good to be here. It's great to have you. And Sharon Bessel, it is wonderful to have you back with us in the studio. It's uh, I know you've had your uh, recent work trip cut short because of the coronavirus outbreaks that we're experiencing again in Australia. So it's great to have you back with us, Sharon. It's good to be back. I'm joining remotely, so I really hope that this technology works. I'm also really looking forward to this conversation today. I've just come back from Northwest Tasmania where some of these issues around local representation and local communities wanting to take control of what's happening in their own areas are really acute. So it's very exciting to have Carolyn and Dennis with us today to talk some of these issues through. So you've both done a lot of work in regional Australia and that's where we've been going to try and focus much of our conversation today. People build communities in a range of different ways and for different reasons, online or in person, around particular issues or as part of a broader movement. So perhaps to kick things off today, I'd like to get from both of you a sense of the importance of place for the people that you work with and the organisations that you study. Carolyn? Does place matter? Oh, absolutely. I don't think it's just a rural and regional issue um, place, but I do think there's a sense of the geography really does play into people's relationships, their connection to land and the way in which they understand their place in place, if that makes sense. So I I think people's sense of where they belong is very geographic and and that might be along you know a river valley it might be in the mountains it might be out in the desert I do think these landscapes that people connect to are very much part of who they are and then of course the communities that then build up around those landscapes Dennis I think you're still in northern Victoria we're in a beautiful part of, uh, of that state does place matter in the politics? Place defines, and over time, place defines relationships, community and one's connection with it. And I think it also defines oneself in relation to other places too. There's a perspective and a like a relational nuance that everyone has. So it defines who you are. Uh, you know, it beca- you, you come with the territory, to use a, the phrase. 
I think that's such an important part of this conversation. As I've said, I've been doing a lot of research in Tasmania over the past few years, and their place is so fundamentally important to people's identity and the way they understand themselves. And I think we see that playing out in so many places across the country. But Carolyn, I wanted to return to your book, as so many of us do, and keep returning to your fabulous book, Mending Democracy. And in that book, I think one of the wonderful things is that you talk so optimistically about how we can start this process of democratic repair. But you also talked about a disconnect between elected representatives and their constituents as being one of the most important challenges to the fabric of democracy. What are some of the factors that are creating this disconnect and how do you see that playing out in your research? So so with Selena Khan and John Boswell, I guess we we picked up on three different sort of disconnects, but the the one that you've you've picked up there is is a crucial one and it particularly because we operate at the moment in a in a system of representative government. And so at the very heart of our democratic institutions, the formal ones, is this notion that we have representatives that essentially represent our place. Um, These are geographic electorates and we could have electorates based on other things, gender or age, but no, in our system, it's a geographic system. And I think what's happened, and I don't think it's an Australian phenomenon or or local to to our situation, I think this is a a global phenomenon. I think that connection between the the centre, the parliament, whether that's a state parliament or a federal parliament, and place and the people that live in that area, I think that's the fundamental disconnect that we we are concerned about in in the book. And it's a starting point. We don't dig into it too too much, but I think it's at the heart of that, that trust problem that people feel like they're the issues that they are confronting, what matters to them, their values are not reflected in in their elected representative who then goes to parliament. And and the bigger, big, big sort of picture here, I guess, is the party, the problem that the party often makes it difficult for that local representation to come through. Hence hence the the reason why independents tend to have more freedom to be able to express and and fully represent their constituents than someone who's who's part of a party that has to balance the demands of the political party with their local constituents. Dennis, is this a relevant issue in your in your experience? Uh, you were part of the the original Voices for Indi movement that formed to elect Cathy McGowan. Um, was that disconnect felt deeply in in, in Indi? Was that part of the the movement that that began uh, the the foundation of that movement? I think that's a it's a really good aspect. The disconnect was in some ways well, it, it, was, it was both ways between the community and the representative. And some and I think if the community is not working at it then the disconnect comes about and it may may somehow be a driver to how things unfold. But certainly there was a sense just on the optics of uh, a disconnect between where our representative was coming from and what it was that our community was on about. So when there was a strong um, allegiance to a party, that pretty much is uh, a party is every, every almost all all of it is somewhere else in some other part of Australia. And if that party dominates the representative's stance at the expense of the community, then you've got disconnect. So I think, but I do want to say that it's actually, it's a two-way thing. Mm. In some ways, to use the phrase, one can be asleep at one's own democracy wheel. 
And if you're not, if we're not working on this, then we can be part of that uh, slide. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that we have just as much responsibility, perhaps, in that relationship. It's a two-way street. It, it's become evident, and I think it's also through. We can talk about this later, I'm sure. But the the idea of people ha- having an invitation and a doorway through which to walk and participate in in one's own democracy is a, is, is is part of what's happened uh, here in Indi, and I'm sure elsewhere too. Is what people want. Um, whereas previously, if you weren't in a party, if you weren't a member of a party, there was no door mm. other than every three years. Carolyn, over the past several years, Australia has experienced a series of crises. So from extreme weather events to pandemic to serious questioning of the values of some of our leaders. And I wanted to connect that to Dennis's lovely idea of the democracy door to walk through. In times of crisis, as we've been experiencing, does that door to democracy open to people and provide an opportunity for greater engagement and greater connection as we collectively try to solve these challenges? Or do we see that door closing? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And I've been reflecting a bit on this because I do think the, the, the different crises that we have faced have presented democracy with different kinds of opportunities and challenges. So if we just sort of reflect on on the summer, the black summer of 2019, 2020, I mean, I think that was, you know, a sense of possibly a very low point in Australia's feeling of, of that the democratic system and the governance system is working and responding and is able to cope with the challenges that we face and that communities felt quite abandoned and indeed had to kind of do it alone in, in some of those communities. And the top-down response that eventually came was not particularly coordinated and it compounded the disasters, if you like. Whereas I think the coronavirus, I think, possibly has has been maybe enabled our, our federal government at least to, to, to work in a you know in a in a fairly top-down direct way. And that's an that's an easier ask than the sort of multi-level consultative way that that the government's probably needed to do more of in the in the bushfire context. And so I think in both those crises communities have had to step up. But I think in in the coronavirus you've probably seen more of that sort of top-down governance and and people willing to to kind of accept a very sort of almost autocratic leadership style, while at the same time, communities doing a lot of mutual aid and collective support at the local level. So that's a complex answer, I guess, but I I think there have been different opportunities for everyday people to engage in the democratic system. And and I, I think the crises has tested our systems. Dennis, what do you think? Do you think these crises are play an important part in the way that local communities engage with their politicians? I'm thinking particularly probably of climate change, but we can think just as much about the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I, I come from a little town called Yakandanda, and to use something very at the local level, I'm involved with a group called Totally Renewable Yakandanda, and it's got a goal of being um, 100% effectively 100% off the grid by 2022 next year. And the reason I'm citing that is because I think it's it's been a really good example of the community deciding this is important to us. Now, we're going to do something about it. And when we started 2014, government wasn't really there in a, in a, a, a way to support what we wanted to do. It was actually still early days. Uh, there were some things happening. But I think the community decided, well, we, we've got a role to play here too. And maybe by projecting our own direction, uh, in this case, the community wanting to get started or do something about something that's urgent, and our responsibility in some way to just 
give it a crack and maybe government would would engage and follow or you know we would form some other collaborative relationship as the project went forward rather than waiting for government to start the fix at a local level mm. so that's the I've just used that as an example of something that I've been, I personally have been involved in that process. Does that experience in Yakandanda help to inform the energy policies that Helen Haynes has been putting forward? It certainly does. The Totally Renewable Yakandanda was the first focused group on renewable energy um, in, in within the federal seat of Indi, and both through, through Kathy McGowan, former federal MP, and Helen Haynes. Um, or through that time, there's now 14 groups around Indi, all at, you know, all looking and working on the same, broadly speaking, the same issue. Mm-hmm. So what happened was the intersect between the community and their representatives became a, a fertile one in that it became a two-way street. Mm-hmm. The more the group did, the more confidence the federal member had to pursue that as something in representing what it is that's going on in their own electorate. Um, and what you referred to with Helen Haynes, she recently conducted a, a national sort of consultation about local energy, and sort of based on this idea of rural communities keeping the income generated from their energy projects within, rather than it being sent off to some profit taker, somebody else, somewhere else. So, but Helen's uh, inquiry and um, subsequent. And submitted a, a bill for consideration was all about the developing the possibilities for a local energy plan at a national level. I want to shift the direction of the conversation just a little bit. Of course, relevant and reliable information is essential to democratic processes and to the kinds of grassroots, bottom-up processes that you've been talking about, Dennis. And it's essential to the ways communities engage with their elected officials and also the way they engage with one another. It's been widely reported that local news outlets have been closing, and in 2019, the ACCC estimated that there were 21 news deserts across the country, most of which are in rural and regional Australia. Carolyn, I wanted to get your thoughts on the impact of this for accountability of political leaders to their electorates, and also what it means for the ability of local community leaders to have their voice. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it is a real problem. I mean, I guess we also have to make sure that if we're going to have local and regional news, it has to be good quality because we can't just assume because there's one outlet that it's going to serve the purpose. Um, you know, I grew up in regional Australia and the editor has such such a strong say in that local newspaper. But, you know, interestingly, I think in, in some of the fieldwork that I've done, certainly in northern New South Wales, you know, the newspaper still provides such a focal point for local conversations and and local events. And so not having that place to to publish and to, to be seen you know the visualization in the news news agents of you know people on the page. Those sorts of things are you know they're, they're absent in those communities where those um, media deserts are. So I think I think it's a real problem. On the other hand, I do think people you can see this across our political system are starting to be more confident in social media and other kinds of news and and information sharing. And and so so whether that's that's enabling communities to also engage in the com- communication through letters to the editor and that sort of space. Probably not, but I, I, I guess it's 
your question was kind of around how our rep- local representatives can use these spaces. And I think it's probably less of a concern for them and more of a concern for the communities that, that want to talk about their sports ovals and, you know, the local events and, and that people want to write in and raise issues rather than just being regurgitated media releases. Dennis, what do you think? Do you think, you, I know you speak to people in all sorts of parts of particularly regional Australia, what's the loss of local media outlets meant for these regional communities when they're trying to connect to each other and, and re-establish their democratic processes? My, my experience is that, it, well, it's, it's an asset that's, as Carolyn's outlined, really that we can't afford to lose, but it, it, is, it is a bit of a, it is a challenge for small, you know, small communities. And I don't think there's, uh, there's not a, some kind of a strategy to replace that with some other hard copy newspapers, I guess we're talking about here, but it doesn't appear to be a strategy for, some, for many of those deserts that uh, Carolyn was referring to to actually fix that. In terms of the, the democracy aspect of it all, democracy to me is a relational thing. It's actually it's um, the, the people that you know, the people that you, you know, the history of a place, you see the context. It's important. We need some vehicle through which that can be expressed. So create opportunities to get together in a safe way. That's the sort of thing that um, uh, we could miss if we don't come up with a, a, a alternative strategies because otherwise sitting at home in a in a house looking at the news uh, around what's going on politically i would argue is probably not a good idea because you'd be getting a pretty narrow bandwidth of what's going on it'd be more like an expression of what others think might should be going on like a one-way news delivery rather than an interactive conversation about politics when i say politics i don't mean I don't mean partisan politics, but rather one in a community, one in a society, one thinking about our, our country's future, or our region's future, that kind of politics. So it's not party focused. I was just going to add also some field work I've been doing uh, recently in the Riverina, you know, talking to local journalists in that context. And, and they play such an important role in, in that accountability you mentioned before, Sharon, and particularly of, of local government. And, you know, we know, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of light at the moment being shone on the federal parliament and, and the need for an integrity commission. But, but there is still a lot of low level corruption, high level corruption going on at local government. And, and local journalists do an enormous job in trying to just keep an eye on what's going on there. And and not just the negative stuff, also the positive things that local government is pushing on, trying to raise questions about why the state government's not focusing here or there. So those skills and those stories, that that's what we're going to lose, I think. Dennis, is social media an adequate replacement? Or is that not sufficient in towns where, you know, Dennis, you talk about people actually coming together face-to-face and having those relationships. So what are your thoughts on the role of social media? It helps to connect with, in some ways, with what's going on at a national level. You can sort of see what the what the state of play is. Um, I would say social media, in say, within my own region, it, it's it's there, but it's it's sort of not really focused uh, on the sort of things we're talking about here. I think it's, all, it's more just, um, well, look, I, I, shouldn't, I guess I shouldn't be all or nothing. I think that it, there is a role for it, you know, for it to be. I think also there's opportunities for, um, and we've, this is what we've done through the Indi experience, is develop ways to bring people together to talk about politics in a um, safe, 
conversational way, talk about difficult topics in a safe way, and and that's a process that the Voices for Indi and the Victorian Women's Trust developed, which is called Kitchen Table Conversations. So it's 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 a, it's a relational invitation as opposed to going to a public meeting or town hall only, where often the loudest person in the room gets to do most of the talking and everyone else does most of the listening. Um, this process is one of actually creating a dynamic uh, for people to participate and hear, have their, their stories heard and for other people to see that, oh, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all in this together, but sure, we're coming from different experiences. So I, I, I know that's not quite the, on the question of social media, but I'm just thinking about, well, how else can we find a way to engage people in discussions about democracy. And so that that is the crux of the conversation we're having today is how to reconnect the disconnected and how to do that in a meaningful way in people's lives. So we're going to take a really short break here and we'll be back with you in just a second. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here with Carolyn Hendricks and Dennis Ginevan. We're talking about the local in the global and how we might change our politics towards a better engagement, particularly for people with their elected representatives. So let's move into finding common ground. And Dennis, you touched on this at the end of the the last section. One of the challenges that you identified in your book, Carolyn, is this growing sense of polarisation with people finding it difficult to find common ground in conversations. Dennis, in your experience, particularly in regional Australia, how challenging is it to bring people together from across the community? These kitchen table conversations, do we find that people are finding it hard to find that common ground? I think in rural communities, there's so much that that people do have in common. Starting from that point is is a good one. Um, And that is, for example, why you live where you do. It's beauty, it's history, it's connectedness. Uh, the topography, whatever it is, but there's some things, and and when 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 big events and challenging events occur, there are lots of uh, ways in which people can see that they are in this together. We are in this together, so it's not all it's not all disconnect and hard work to find people to to bring people together around some things. But I think when it comes to the idea that talking about politics and how it interfaces with community as being something like a a football match, you know, Collingwood versus Carlton, one party versus another, and the game of politics is the way that's played out, is something that's not very helpful. In fact, you know, to use a probably a bit of a crazy analogy, but it's, it's sometimes people are like they're watching it and it's as if the crew on the bridge of the aircraft carrier 
are fighting amongst themselves uh, whilst SES Australia moves forward. So, you know, that, that's what I think there's a disconnect there where people think, well, what's happening, what they're seeing play out on our behalf is actually we can do better than that. We can do better than that. And and uh, I think there's a real uh, yearning for people to see, wish to see a better connection and uh, a better sense, a greater sense of responsibility for the way in which our, our, our elect- rural electorates get uh, represented. Carolyn, you've done a lot of research across parts of regional Australia. What do you see in relation to the ability to find common ground in a broader context that is very often polarising? And here I'm really interested in the point that Dennis made about bringing people together using perhaps that kitchen table approach, but bringing people together to have those really difficult conversations. What's your research telling us about the way this plays out in different communities? I think it depends on place. You know, if we go back to that point we had at the very beginning, because I think there are some very divided communities in Australia, and often that's about a resource development project, or it might be about water, or it might be about a mine, or a, you know, coal seam gas uh, project. And these infrastructure projects can really be highly polarising. And if it were left to the community, they would probably find their way, like Dennis has, has indicated, that there is often a lot of common ground. And the research that I've done in those polarised communities suggests that there's a kind of polite acceptance that people have different views. But what tends to happen in these communities is that various you know, state and federal government hearings and inquiries come into these towns and set up processes that are, by their very nature, not very discursive and open and, and trying to, to find common ground. And so they, they often end and create more fracturing. And then the social media, just back to that conversation we are having before, I think in some of those areas, social media has been very good at getting people to form alliances on their side of the fence, but it hasn't been particularly useful. Our research has sort of done some analysis of Facebook community groups in and around polarised conflicts in regional Australia. And it, it finds that there's very little listening and common ground across those, those two camps or across the, across the divide. So I think it depends on place. There's been some places where the, the pandemic, I think, has really bridged divides because people have had to get a sense of collective purpose and, and they've, they've come together. But as long as we've got divisive infrastructure projects and perceived tension between employment versus environment or employment versus climate, I mean, these things make communities feel nervous and they polarise. It strikes me that whilst where there are some figureheads that, like some of these independent members of parliament that we've been talking about, when we're looking at local leadership, we're often seeing a more distributed, discursive style compared to see what we see when we're looking at the maybe the top level, quote unquote, of our politics in Australia. Obviously, not all prime ministers and state premiers lead in the same way. But do you think that the leaders at the local government level necessarily operate differently compared to some of the senior government leaders? Is it a case that different contexts require different skills? Or do you think some of these uh, inclusive and collaborative styles that we see at a local level could become more useful and more easily accepted at a federal level? Dennis, what do you think? It's a good question, Greta. I'm just trying to think of this really good example recently of a, a mayor of a town that was in, in a fair bit of trouble, was just doing a magnificent job on national television talking about his community and why we need to pull together and to recognise what's going on. And to me, by him doing that, it wasn't polarised at all, but by doing it, it, it to me, it just felt like this guy's believable. 
he actually, you could see that his mandate to be talking so well was coming from his connection with his community. And, and, and you could see the leadership coming uh, from that interview that he had. And I'm, I'm just using the most recent example. But I think the further away we go from levels of government, from the community, then we've got a, I guess it's a, it's a much cha- more challenging way to, to connect the idea of community or national or state level. It can work and you can bring good, good people come out of the community and represent the community when it's localised. I think it just becomes a much more challenging thing for, for the people doing it too, for the politicians to, to do that. It's actually, I guess, it's, as I said earlier, there's a sort of an, an opportunity for a collaborative relationship between the community and the politician to, to do that, to reach that, as opposed to it being, well, you're Labor and I don't like you or you're Liberal and I don't like you, to actually find a way to get over the, the, the partisanship um, aspects of the process and, and listen to what the community is saying. Carolyn, what do you think? Do you think some of these inclusive, discursive skills are useful? Look, I think it's definitely possible for our federal and our state MPs to, to do better constituency work. And, and if they're in executive positions, they can conceive of their constituents as the whole state or, or the whole nation, in fact. I think they can do that around specific issues. So, for example, at the moment, Andrew Lee's been doing some interesting town hall meetings around a particular kind of policy issue. But I think when we talk about leadership in terms of actually the whole style of how people are trying to bring the community with them and to actively listen to that community. I think the, the party remains the problem here. A couple of years ago, I did a briefing in New Parliamentarians, you know, about sort of this, this work I'd been doing in Indi, looking at the community work there. And many of the new MPs from the major parties said, look, we would love to do that kind of work with our constituents, but we can't. People would laugh at us and I don't know what the party would think. And so there's this sort of, that needs to be party reform for, I think, individual MPs to feel like they can actively go to their communities and say, what do you think on these issues? And I'll take that back to the party. Um, At the moment, I think the community feels like they take issues to their MPs and then the party overrides that. And until that's kind of reworked, I think it's very difficult for our MPs at the state and federal level who who are bound by their party to really actively listen to their community and then respond back. Carolyn, I think you've just in a nutshell uh, explained the the disconnect that so many people feel across Australia in terms of their federal politicians and the role that the independent movement is having both in elections previously with the election of Cathy McGowan and Helen Haynes, Ali Stegall, Rebecca Sharkey and others. And so many people are beginning to wonder what might happen if this trend continues. Dennis, if we see over the next few decades an increase in the the number of independents in parliaments, will will this create chaos? Will we see a wide range of independents seeing reform more complicated or do you think that this will give us an opportunity to improve the policy agenda in Australia? Well, in a democracy, what it is that people want is a pretty good way to work out where the whole steering mechanism begins and that is on the ground with the wheels. So to me, there's actually a great opportunity to improve the input to policy formation through, if it is, that there's some strong process to ensure that each community, their views are being considered and voted upon by their representative and have a confidence that that, that is being represented by their, their MP when they go and vote. So that's the first thing is that 
there's a, an opportunity to improve that relationship with a politician. There are a, a number of well, many groups forming in different electorates around Australia right now. From what I can see, it's not anti-party; it's pro-community. The, the philosophy is which we're not we're not trying to pull. I don't think they're trying to pull anything down, but to improve the way in which and create the sort of sense of contests and opportunity for communities to see. Well, we're getting the best person we can to represent us, and my my thinking is that it actually leads to potentially a better situation in terms of policy formation uh, and more engagement with the Australian community as opposed to it being somehow diverted, diluted, shaped by specific interests that are that are outside each community. That's such a great phrase, not anti-party but pro-community. I think we might use that one again. Carolyn, what would it mean for the two major parties if we do see an increasing number of independents elected through these community engagement processes with a two-way connection between community and representative? What do you think you see the future of the, uh, the two major parties in Australia uh, like in that context? Would it lead to parliamentary reform or would it see other challenges? Look, I think that there's lots of spin-offs. I think it would mean a more engaged electorate, I think, around around Australia because the seats become more competitive. MPs, whether they're in a party or not, they have to be responsive, they have to be connected. So, I mean, Dennis sort of talked about pro-community. I think it's also about trying to make the electorate visible. There are many electorates in Australia at the moment that are completely invisible because they're a safe seat. And so, this, this, this these movements are not just designed, in my understanding, to, to, you know, change everything, but they're actually just trying to make people see that they they are part of that system and they, they need to be taken into consideration. I do think part of this conversation we haven't talked about yet, but I think it's so important, is also that the electorate starts to realise that there are also constraints on our decision makers and that two-way communication is really important. And one of the things that Helen Haynes and Cathy McGowan did so well and, and Helen does so well is, you know, communicate back to her constituents about why she took decisions and and the rationale for, for that. And that that helps the electorate also understand what, what the limitations are because politicians, I think, get increasingly frustrated that it, people want everything and they, we can't deliver that. But but that's also about us learning how the system works. So so there's a there's an education process I think that could come out of this if people get more engaged, get the wheels on the ground as Dennis described, and that actually can then help drive a more educated and empowered electorate and constituency all around Australia. Dennis, it's something we hear occasionally that people feel like their vote doesn't count. Is this a mechanism to improve that sense? What what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think I think it is that that every person's vote counts. And particularly if, if it's in a, situ- in a situation where the, you know, there is a sense that it's being they're being listened to. Ironically, in, in, in a really close election in Indi, the first election in 2013, uh, Kathy McGowan won by about 439 votes. So it was almost as if every person's vote, you could almost say, was needed for that to happen. So if, you know, and I don't mean I don't mean in a, in a contest with people who didn't vote for her. I'm just saying though that there was a sense of this is pretty sharp and pretty direct and personal that it has a closeness to the idea that this is my democracy too. This is my this is my community. Every person's got a right to have a, an engagement in the process. The deal isn't to be run from somewhere else. It's, it, it, the deal is is to be participating and feeling you're going to be listened to to be. Um, confident that your your voice and your vote will mean something. 
This has been such a fascinating conversation. We're going to have to draw this conversation to a close, but there are issues here that we're going to come back to again and again. A couple of issues that I wanted to get your thoughts on as we do wrap up. So we started to talk about the importance of leaders at a local level. And I wonder in closing, if we could hear from each of you about what you think is the most important thing that leaders at that local level can do to strengthen the connection between communities and democracies. If there was one thing that you could advise local leaders about, what would you suggest to them? I just think listening is such an important part of the democratic process and so much focus is on voice and talking and meeting people, but but actively sitting down and taking time, slowing things down to actually listen to issues in the community and brokering conversations so that people in their electorate can also listen to each other. So fostering, I guess, a culture of listening, I think would be would be a great outcome. And Dennis, what are your thoughts on that? What do local leaders need to do to make this connection between community and democracy stronger? I think bringing out a a stance or a culture by by those leaders of you're in this as much as I am. We're all in this together, but you've got a role to play and to honour and respect that and to engage with positive energy within the community to work with local leaders to find solutions. So and look, a lot, a lot of that feels to me like it's a bit you know, mother, motherhood statements in a sense, but it's a simple thing, and that is to not have people feeling as if, oh, I don't have any say in any of this, this is all happening to me, someone else has made the decisions on how my life is going to unfold. That's the downside of, not, of having people whose health and mental health and sense of community can be really damaged. If, if, if there isn't a respect for, for that. We have just talked about local connection, about the importance of listening, of sharing. And, and Dennis, I think you're, you're talking about sharing respect locally being really key to good quality communication between constituents and local leaders. But if we think about that at a, a state and federal level for our, our final question, how can we repair those connections between local communities, our democracy through our federal system? Well, that's a, that's a big question. And I don't think there's a magic bullet. I mean, I think there's a lot of proposals out there for fancy and, and intricate processes that we could run, you know, national conversations and, and, and there are some big issues that we could run them and I, I don't think they don't have a place. But I do think it's more of a, um, a broader um, reorientation of people seeing and valuing our democracy. We have an old democracy. We have a very well-functioning democracy in many respects and kind of almost celebrating that and getting people engaged beyond just the sausage sizzle on voting day. And and I think that is going to be um, at the local level. So I actually think it requires our state and federal MPs to get on the ground and not just stand at football grounds and, and shopping centres, but actually go out into the community more to, to be in the community. That That is – and and less of the stage politics and more of the, the, the out and about where people are actually meeting themselves. It feels like there's so many moving parts to it all, but one that has become pretty evident recently is where people feel as if no matter what's being said to a representative – if they can't explain why why and how they voted on legislation relative and how it relates back to the electorate that they represent, then that's that's a that's a challenge. 
So I know I know that some MPs, including the head Helen Haynes here in Indi, uh, not only is is her voting record on the website, but it's also there's, there's another aspect which is why she voted a certain way on each piece of legislation. So nobody nobody expects to have their representative do everything the way they want it to happen. They accept that you know there's got to be some kind of due process and you know consideration and in the end the representative has the has the responsibility to make the decision on how they vote. But if it's explained, I think a lot of people are pretty happy about that. It's actually a satisfactory uh, sense of okay. Uh, now I get it. I, I, I may not agree with it, but I can see what happened when it came to the vote and why representatives are voting the way they do. Conversely, if they're not, if they're always voting with the one pattern, which probably tends to reflect a party, there's no explainer. Well, it, the, the explainer is implied, but that, and that's it. So I reckon that's one area that I think a lot of people are starting to feel well. What, what's what's some of these decisions that are being the stances that a, a representative might have taken got to do with anything and anyone in the electorate from where they came? Is there is there any uh, relationship? So I think having more light on that is an important thing. We're going to have to wind this conversation up at this point. I could certainly talk about this for a lot longer, and I really like those two takeaway points at the end about how we should be celebrating the democracy that we have and re-engaging and that the accountability of our elected representatives can be improved in a way that adds to our engagement in the political process. Carolyn Hendricks, Dennis Ginevan, thank you so much for your time on uh, Policy Forum Pod today. We really appreciate the, the uh, ideas that you brought to the table. Thanks, Anna Greta. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you. So, listeners, I think that was a, a quite a remarkable conversation in our series on leadership. We had great insights from Dennis and Carolyn about the challenges and the way in which our democracy has been fraying, not just around the edges, but sometimes in the centre over the last few years with an increasingly disconnected population whose, whose vote perhaps has taken on less, uh, less importance. They've also given us quite an extraordinary framework for how we might rebuild and re-engage. They've talked about the importance of listening, of sharing, of finding the common ground between the polarising extremes that can really divide us. We should be celebrating our Australian democracy. We have an opportunity to re-engage, to listen to each other and to celebrate. And I think they've given us extraordinary ideas about how leadership in Australia might see its future. So, listeners... Thank you so much for joining us today. Please, listeners, we love hearing from you and you can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. And one of the ways to engage with us is through Facebook. If you type Policy Forum pod into the search bar, you can join the group there. Please subscribe to us on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast and we love getting reviews. So thank you very much for the feedback. Listeners, this series is not over. We will have at least one more episode to reflect on the nature of leadership and its future in our democratic process. And I really look forward to to sharing the next episode with you in another week. Thank you so much for your time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.